Polly J57, quote, Thomas Sowell brings tears to my eyes. He is simply brilliant. David Snow, quote, Thomas Sowell is the kind of man I aspire to be, close quote. Those are just a couple of tweets from the thousands that I have received tweets, comments in response to interviews with Thomas Sowell over the years. To explain the great man, Jason Riley, author of the new book, Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. Jason Riley on Uncommon Knowledge now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. Jason Riley grew up in Buffalo, New York, earning a bachelor's degree from the State University of New York at Buffalo, uh, and then getting his start in journalism at the Buffalo News. This upstate New York boy salutes that upstate New York boy, Jason. In 1994, Mr. Riley joined the staff of the Wall Street Journal as a copy reader. Today, Mr. Riley is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and, and a member of the journal's editorial board. Not many people have made that kind of climb at the Wall Street Journal. A fellow at the Manhattan Institute, Mr. Riley is the author of a number of books, Please Stop Helping Us, How Liberals Make It Harder for Blacks to Succeed, published in 2014, is one of those books, and False Black Power, published in 2017, is another. Earlier this year, Mr. Riley narrated a new documentary, Thomas Sowell, Common Sense in a Senseless World. Jason Riley's newest book, published just this month, Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. Jason, welcome. Thank you for having me, Peter. First question. Thomas Sowell, economist, educator, author, fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, now in his 90s and still writing. Let's begin with a handful of the thousands of tweets and YouTube comments that have been posted in response to interviews with Tom Sowell on this program, Uncommon Knowledge. Chris Quinton, even through the chaos of medical school, your interviews with him, his books on Audible, and his many writings have allowed me to stay sane. SJ777, Thomas Sowell played a massive role in turning my life around. I'm Swedish. So the indoctrination of self-pity was deeply rooted. Today, I'm working toward a future I feel excited about. Thank you, Dr. Sowell. David Snow, Thomas Sowell is the kind of man I aspire to be. Chad Call, I would like to know what experiences he had as a child. I hope to raise my children to be as near this man's quality of intellect as possible. Close quote. Jason, he's not just an economist or an educator or an author. There is Tom is in a category that I'm going to ask you to define. How is it that this man means so much to so many people? Um, I, I guess the word I, I would use to describe him is iconic in, in, in some sense. Um, I, and, and, and he's he's a humble man. He's not someone who set out to become an icon. And I think uh, in one sense, it's, it's, um, it's a little disappointing that uh, why he has become uh, iconic, because I think he's become iconic for being an honest intellectual, Peter, and, and that shouldn't make you iconic. Uh, simply being a straight shooter, uh, simply doing your homework, following the facts where they lead, even when they lead to unpopular conclusions or politically incorrect conclusions, uh, shouldn't make you uh, iconic. 
but but that is that is how Tom has become iconic simply uh, by being uh, an honest intellectual who follows the facts and and um, and is more interested in telling the truth than in being popular and and unfortunately uh, among intellectuals today that makes you a standout. Mm. Jason, your book Maverick. How how did you first conceive of this book? I'm going to guess that you've been reading Tom for a long time, that you're one of the many people to whom he means a great deal. But how did the book come about? Um, it, it came up, up, about by me bothering Thomas Sowell quite a bit. <laughs> um, he, he didn't have a biographer. Uh, I was surprised uh, at that. And, um, and he, he didn't particularly want one. <laughs> and so um, uh, I started back, I would say, in, in the mid to late um, uh, 2000s, uh, trying to get him to uh, agree to, uh, to, to some long interviews for, for a book. And I eventually got some of his friends, uh, like Shelby Steele and the late Walter Williams, uh, to, to help me out in, in, in persuading Tom. As, as you know, he's not someone who changes his mind very often. Um, but, you know, as you, as you said, he's, he's in his 90s now. So maybe I just wore him down. <laughs> he finally but, agreed to, um, to to cooperate with. Him. Let's. Let, I just want to say, I I loved the book, and I have to confess, I do a lot of interviews about books, and there's always a temptation to skim, and I just settled in and read your book and enjoyed every word. But what you're saying is that this book is the product of some what two decades of gestation and thinking about it and pestering the man himself. Is that right? Well, I've been a fan of his since um, I discovered him in, in the early 90s when I was in college. And, and someone said to me uh, during a discussion down at the school newspaper where I worked, uh, Jason, you sound like Tom Sowell. And I said, who's that? And the person um, wrote down the name of one of Tom's books on a sheet of paper. I went to the library that, that evening, checked it out and read the book in one sitting, and then went back the next day and, and checked out the library's entire collection of Thomas Lowell works. And, and I've been hooked ever since. He's had a huge, huge impact on my, on my journalism. Uh, I got to meet him for the first time in the mid-90s when I was on the staff of the Wall Street Journal. And he would come through New York on, on various book tours and meet with editorial boards. And uh, so that's how I initially met him. And then in the mid-2000s, I went out to to Hoover at Stanford University and um, for a long, longer interview with him that I wrote up for the newspaper. And that's when we sort of struck up an acquaintance that, that has endured over the years. So, so I've been thinking and reading Thomas Sowell for decades and, um, and very much wanted, wanted to do this, just as I wanted to do the, um, the video that you mentioned earlier, the documentary yes. film uh, that I made. Uh, the filmmakers came to me when they found out about the biography and asked me if I wanted to narrate a film about Tom's life. And I said, uh, absolutely, and jumped at, at, at the opportunity. Um, so, so this is something I've wanted to do for a long, long time. Jason, can, could I just, when you first met Tom, and as you got to know him in longer conversations, you're a journalist, so you've encountered all kinds of people, and you've read all kinds of books and columns and so forth. Some people are better around paper than they are in person, so to speak. What, what, if this is Tom on paper and this is Tom in person, are they, is there an identity there? Or is there, what, what do you pick up about him? What did you pick up about him when you met the man that you didn't know from reading? Um, he, he 
is he is quite similar, I would think, to the person you're reading. Um, he, he he's a straight shooter. Um, uh, he's very funny, um, and he's he's very engaging, um, and and. I think that that comes across not only on paper, but in the interviews. And you've done, you've probably done more interviews with him than anyone, uh, Peter. And, and, and I should add, you're, you're one of the reasons, I think, that uh, uh, people have the reaction to Tom that you were, that you were just uh, uh, referencing in those, in those posts. Uh, and one of the great things, you know, I, I watched a lot of interviews with Tom um, in, in preparation for the book. And I especially enjoyed the uncommon knowledge ones. You, you, and, and and mostly it was because you allowed him to speak, and, and it, you you you, you Jason, think it's a that you take because, it for granted. But there are because, so many interviews with Tom where it's almost as if he can't get in a word. <laughs> and as you know, if you just ask Tom a short question and sit back and listen, you will be fascinated because he is brilliant. And and that's what you allowed him to do, and 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 I think in doing that, uh, you, you, the humanity comes across, the intelligence comes across, and I think that's what people were reacting to in those remarks. I thank you very much, but the reason I let him talk is because he scares me. <laughs> that is a you don't want to you you don't want to be stupid in front of Tom because he'll that, let that, you know. That that does I, come I, across. Yes, that that does come across if you've read him. And if you uh, are familiar with his writings, he is very intellectually intimidating. Um, but but it's not something um, uh, you know. He 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 carries it well. I will say, um, and, yes, and he's yeah. not someone who's looking out to put you down or to put you in your place or point at or, or point it out. Um, but 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 uh, he is he he's a brilliant a brilliant brilliant man. But uh, also someone who was very very generous with his with his time. Mm-hmm. Jason, where he came from, a little bit about Tom Sowell, the man, and his, in particular, his youth, his formation, how Tom Sowell became Tom Sowell. Could we begin, just take a moment to look at this, this brief clip. Yeah, I, I used to sleep out on a fire escape at Harlem. At, at midnight, I used to, if I was awake at midnight, I would go walking out to the nearest uh, newsstand to get the morning paper to find out what the baseball scores were. Uh, I'm sure people don't do that today. Harlem felt safe. Yes. And what about the schools? The schools were, were a lot better. Uh, pe- people, people expected me to meet the same standards that kids on Park Avenue met. Now, that, w- that was undoubtedly unjust. But uh, as, as between, between that un- injustice and spending the rest of your life paying back for a poor education to begin with, uh, I'll, I'll go with that un- injustice. So there he is talking about Harlem. Get us from North Carolina, where he's born, to Harlem, how did how did how did he how did he join that migration of African Americans from the South to Northern cities? Well, uh, he was born uh, in rural North Carolina, outside of Charlotte, uh, during the Great Depression. So we're talking about a very um, a poor family at, at a time when when the country is going through uh, an economic crisis, and uh, and of course this is a Jim Crow. South, um, so you, you you can see what he had stacked against them against him. On top of that, he was orphaned at, at a young age. Um, his father died before he was born, and his mother died in childbirth to a younger sibling. Um, so Tom didn't never knew his parents. Uh, he was taken in by a great aunt, uh, one of his grandmother's sisters, and uh, and her two adult uh, children, uh, one of whom was married. 
And so Tom uh, uh, moved in with that family and, and they moved north to New York City to Harlem. Uh, well, first they moved to Charlotte for a brief period and then they moved uh, to Harlem where, where, where Tom was raised. And it's interesting that um, um, Tom talks quite a bit uh, in his own personal writings about being raised by essentially uh, four adults uh, as if he were an only child. And what an impact that had on his childhood and his formative years. He has said that probably made more of a difference in his life uh, than anything else that ever happened to him. And what he's talking about is, is this being in, in connection with his, his research on the birth order of children and how, mm -hmm. say, the firstborn has an advantage. And an only child has even more of an advantage than a firstborn. And so the fact that he was essentially an only child being raised by four adults, he thinks, had a huge, huge impact on, on his life. Mm. So he, you write, I'm going to quote Maverick, Soul was admitted to one of New York's most competitive high schools, but dropped out at age 16. He left home a year later, for a full decade, Sowell received his education from the School of Hard Knocks, as he put it. He didn't get around to earning a college degree until he was already in his late 20s and had served in the Marines, close quote. So it becomes very clear that he's a good student. He gets admitted to, which high school was it, Jason, do you recall? It was Stuyvesant. 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 It's still one of the top it's, high schools in It's uh, the high school to, in to get City, into yes. in, in, in yeah. New York. And he drops out at 16. Tell us, tell us about that decade when he's knocking around. Well, he, he was working as a messenger uh, for, for Western Union. That was one of his jobs. Uh, he worked in the machine shop. Um, uh, he was, I guess, what they call it, trying, trying to find himself. Um, but, um, but it was tough going. And, and I think what, what really uh, straightened him out was getting drafted uh, into the Marines uh, during the Korean War. I did two years in the Marines, and I think um, it helped him uh, get his life together. Uh, and he, and, he, and he's, he's, he's spoken about those years. He, um, he learned a lot about photography, which would be, and he, and he would be, become a, a lifetime photo hobbyist and an excellent, an excellent photographer. Um, uh, and, and I think he just learned some personal discipline in the, um, in the Marines as well that, that stayed with him. Uh, after he left. And then, of course, um, the result there was that he was able to afford to go to college on the GI Bill. And, and so when he got out of the Marines, he enrolled in night school at, at, um, uh, at Howard University, the historically black college in Washington, D.C. And, and then what, after what a year, year there, he transferred to Harvard. So he's in Washington, D.C. What years are, is he there? These or, are the mid-50s. Mid-50s. So yeah. it is important. I mean, before we get to the Tom Sowell we know and who shows up in these film clips and who takes up the bulk of your book, the early part of the book, talking about the early part of Tom's life is fascinating. Yeah. And what comes across is he had a hard life. Oh, oh yes. Orphaned and raised yeah. by people who were, they were family, but they were not his parents. Then this decade of when he's just knocking around and he goes to Washington, D.C. when Jim Crow was in effect. We're talking about an African-American intellectual who is still with us, who couldn't use that water fountain or couldn't go into that restaurant. He experienced this. Is that correct? Yeah, he, he, he's written about that, uh, particularly in, in, in D.C., um, he, which was still segregated at, at the time. Um, and he, he, he used to like to take pictures and he would walk around uh, parts of, uh, 
of the of the city uh, taking photographs, and and there were places where uh, he could go into the restaurant to eat, but he had to stand while others could sit. And he said, "I'd rather go hungry than suffer that indignity." And he mm-hmm. wouldn't even go into the restaurant in the first place. Uh, e- even in the Marines, he talks about uh, places that that he would be traveling in the country in the United States, where uh, where you know he wasn't allowed to eat in certain restaurants and so forth. So yeah, this this is what uh, blacks of his era had to endure, um, and 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 they did. And and it's all the more remarkable uh, where Tom ended up. Uh, that he came came out of such uh, such these 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 kinds of experiences, and I always remind people of this, Peter, because uh, you know pe- people look at me as a black conservative and they go, "Oh, Jason, you you know you 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 are like you know Thomas Sowell and Clarence Thomas, and and, and you you know what you've had to put up with," and I say, "You guys have no idea what someone who is ninety years old and black and came out of the Jim Crow South had to put up with." There is, there, there, I should not even be mentioned in the same sentence mm. with someone who had to put up with what a Thomas Sowell or a Clarence Thomas had to put up with growing up in, in the conditions that they did. But yes, these these are guys that 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 went through hell, frankly. So, so let's say he, so he goes through hell as a, as a, as a black American. And then this amazing string, Howard University for a year, Harvard University, where he gets his BA degree, Columbia, and then the University of Chicago, where he ends up getting a doctorate. What happens here? Suddenly he, it's not as if his mind turns on because we know that he was recognized as a very bright kid, even when he was in the school system in New York. But what what happens that, well, that produces this, he, he this was, intellectual he was blaze? Yeah, Sorry? He, was, he was a bright kid and he was a curious kid. And, and education made him all the more curious. He ended up studying economics uh, simply because he was good at math <laughs> and it was a natural fit. Um, so that steered him toward, toward economics. And then he saw economics as a way of explaining the world around him. And, and the, the other transformation that's going on here that we haven't talked about is that um, Tom was a man of the left in his youth. Yes. And, and not just slightly left of center, Peter. He was a Marxist. Yes. And he was a Marxist who read and studied Marx quite closely uh, from a young age. Uh, even when he was not in school, he is someone who picked up on Marx and, and became a committed Marxist. And, and, and so all through his college years, even when he's studying under Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago in the early 1960s, Thomas Sowell is still a Marxist. And, and, and that's worth um, <laughs> remembering. No, no, that's worth, here, here's another brief, another very brief clip, Jason, if you don't mind. I, mean, I was still a Marxist after taking Milton Friedman's course. Uh, but I, I but, went into, I, but, but one, one summer in the government, was enough to let me say, no, this government is really not the answer. I mean, that is... <laughs> Milton Friedman didn't cure you, but the federal government did. The federal government did. So no, never say the federal government doesn't do anything. So how, how, did the federal, how did a year in the federal government cure him of Marxism? Well, well the, the, the attraction to Marx uh, for, for Tom, and, and frankly, for, 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 for many blacks of that era, was that Marx seemed to explain the world that they lived in. Tom, Tom when he was, um, uh, this is after he had dropped out of, out of high school and, and was working uh, as a messenger in New York City. He talks about uh, his job being in downtown Manhattan and how he would take uh, a bus home 
uh, up, which is in uh, Harlem, in northern Manhattan. And he would talk about the changing landscape on the bus, how he'd go through these, these nice neighborhoods, and then he'd get to the tenements where he got off, and, and everything was so different. And he wanted to know what explained this world, what just happened. Why is this so poor? Why did I, what I went through just, you know, on that bus, why, why was that, that so luxurious? And Marx explained that to him. He, he, the power structures, the capitalists and the proletariat and the exploitation, and it made so much sense to Tom. And I think that was the attraction to Marxism. As he studied uh, economics further, though, um, on his own, um, and, and then again, as he went and, and, and saw some of these ideas put in practice in government, he realized that the government had its own agenda and that many of the, the, the policies that the government promoted did not necessarily help uh, the people it was intended to help, even if it helped the government uh, perpetuate whatever program uh, it wanted to perpetuate. In this case, it was uh, minimum wage laws and how what effects those were having on employment rates. And, and, and Tom realized that they were having a, a negative effect on employment rates, yet his colleagues in, in, in the government office where he worked didn't seem to care much about that. Okay. So as you convey it in Maverick, by the time Tom Soul starts writing, We'll come in a moment to his career in teaching. But by the time he starts writing, this is a man who has traveled from the poverty of the deep south to the urban north, to Manhattan. And it is a man who has who's been in the Marine Corps. He served as a Western Union telegram delivery boy. He tried out as a pitcher for the Dodgers, as I recall, at one point. And then you also get this intellectual journey from hard left to the liberal, I don't know, he's not conservative. In, it's, how, he would call himself libertarian. What would he call himself, Jason? What's the right? I, I, I think he's, I, I think classical liberal. He self-identifies as a free market conservative. Okay, free market um, conservative. Probably, but it's not all that unusual, that, that journey uh, from the left to the right or the left to the center uh, among a lot of, of conservatives. And, and, and Sol's pointed this out. Milton Friedman started on the left. Clarence Thomas started on the left. Walter Williams Shelby Steele started on the left uh, and the extreme left in many cases. Thomas was a Black Panther. You know, Walter Williams sympathized much, much more with uh, Malcolm X than he did with, with Martin Luther King. So, uh, so you, it, it, that, that journey isn't all that uncommon um, uh, among conservatives. Many, many have started out on the political left. Okay. All right. All right. In, in any event, we have a man who's in places and done things and traveled in his mind and as well as geographically. Okay. So he's written so many books. You do justice to more than I can begin to ask you about in a brief video conversation like this, but let's take a couple. The classic book, Conflict of Visions. I'm quoting you in Maverick. Our debate, and you're talking about this one book, Conflict of Visions. Our debates result mainly from two conflicting conceptions of society and how the world works. On one side, you have the constrained or tragic vision, which sees mankind as hopelessly flawed. The opposite vision is unconstrained or utopian, and it rejects the idea of inherent limits on what can be achieved, close quote. Can you explain that a little bit? Constrained versus unconstrained. And how is it that Tom uses this one book to explain everything in some ways. <laughs> <of it? laughs> 
Yeah, the constrained vision is also sometimes called the tragic vision. And uh, the unconstrained vision is also sometimes called the utopian vision by Tom. And, and they're, they're just, they're ways of looking at the world. And uh, Tom falls on the constrained side. But in that book, what, what he is trying uh, to explain is that, uh, A, these debates go back a long way. Um, he traces them all the way back to people like Godwin. In, in, in the 1700s and down through Rawls and then into the, the social justice uh, 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 debates that we're having today with people like Ibram Kendi and, and Ta-Nehisi Coates and so forth. Uh, it's, all, it's all of a piece and it comes out of a, 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 your view of human nature and whether there are limitations to the perfectibility of mankind, so to speak. And, and, and so the constrained vision says, listen, uh, we, we may want to eliminate poverty and racism and war, but that's not likely to happen. So what we really need to focus on is, is building institutions and maintaining institutions that help us deal with the fact that we're never going to eliminate these things. So yes, we need a defense department. Uh, yes, we need a rule of law for when people think they've been wronged by someone for whatever reason, including the color of their skin and, 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 and so forth. And, and so that is what it's about. It's about building institutions to help us deal with problems we will never ever entirely eliminate. Whereas on, on the unconstrained or the utopian view is that no, we can uh, 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 come very, very close to perfecting man if we just have very smart people in the right places, putting in place the right policies. Uh, uh, we can make these problems, we can solve these problems. And not only can we solve them, there are no trade-offs to doing it. Uh, it's a win-win-win situation for everyone. And, 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 and that is what Sol refers to as a more utopian point of view, but it's where the this, this, this sort of social justice left mindset comes from, and he traces the, the traditions of, of, of that thought process. So you quote, of course, there's a great deal to be said about this one book, which I consider a classic. I know you do as well. You quote one quip by Tom that in a certain sense sums up not only that book, but I'm going to suggest it sums up his whole, his whole approach to public affairs. And this is, uh, this is Tom himself, you're quoting him in Maverick. The first rule of economics is scarcity. The first rule of politics is to ignore the first rule of economics. Yeah. In other words, economics is about reality and reality is disappointing. We always want more than we can get. And politics is about delusions. And Tom is always going to try to draw us back to reality, reality. What's real? What can we actually do? Is that fair? Yes, yes. And also about reminding us that incentives matter. And, and, uh, that, yes, and, that, and that people, uh, politicians have their own agenda. Um, and, and we can't forget that. Uh, intellectuals have their own agenda. And, and, and we, can't, we, we, we have to keep, always keep that in mind, that, 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 that people uh, respond to incentives uh, people are motivated by certain things, and, and we should keep that in mind when, when we listen to what they are, what they are telling us. And, uh, and so a, a policy that may serve the interest of a politician quite well uh, may not do much good at all for the people he claims to be representing in office. And, 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 and Sol has, has been masterful in pointing out uh, that these two things are often in conflict and yet uh, the, the political class does a, a very good job of obscuring 
obscuring that sort of thing. Uh, one, of, one of the examples I remember more recently from a conversation you had with Tom was about um, uh, teachers unions and teacher pay. And he made the point that um, teachers uh, who the union is supposed to represent would love a pay raise and it would be in their interest to get one. But for the teachers union, a pay raise is not necessarily what a union is most interested in. A union wants more teachers hired so that more of them can pay dues. Teachers unions are not uh, uh, created by teachers. There are people who create unions. And in, fa in fact, uh, the, 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 uh, the interests of the teachers unions can, can be opposite to those of, of the teachers. For example, if there's a large increase of money in, into the school system, and they're always saying it's underfunded, no matter how much, no matter how many billions of dollars go down a bottomless pit. Uh, when that when the money is out there and available, you could use that money to raise teachers' salaries. That would be good for the teachers. It would be bad for the teachers' unions. The teachers' unions uh, are get, get more dues if instead of raising the teachers' salaries, you create more jobs, more teachers' aides, more counselors, more nurses, more this, more that more bureaucrats in the, in the system because all those people will be paying union dues. Whereas if you simply have a higher paid teachers, you don't, in, you don't get any increase in, in, in union dues. And, and so even there, where you would think, of course, the teachers and the unions must have the same shared interest. Um, no, it's not necessarily the case. And Thomas spent a, a career pointing out those, those differences. There's another chapter from his early life that I just found fascinating. I was only dimly aware of this, I confess. And you recounted in some detail. Quoting you now, Sowell took an idiosyncratic approach to the nature versus nurture debate over race and intelligence, close quote. And this, this all goes back to um, Jensen at Cal Berkeley. Could you explain, I mean, this is, this subject is untouchable today, but it was untouchable then. And Tom touched it. He waited right. Can you, but explain the background. What's the debate? Well, the, 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 the debate is over uh, the extent to which genetics plays a role in intelligence. Um, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's, an old, it's an old debate. And, um, uh, and one of the things that, that Tom has, has pointed out is that um, uh, the argument that intelligence, uh, that, that genetics, I, I say, uh, I should say, plays a large role um, in intelligence is undermined by, by a number of factors. And one is, is that the, the, the difference in, in intelligence scores or IQ scores between uh, the races um, is, is, is smaller than uh, the amount uh, that a group, a single group, can rise in terms of their score within a generation or two. And which of course undermines the, the, the fact that, that, that genetics is, is, is driving this because genetics doesn't work that quickly in a generation or two. And, and so Jensen was, was someone who had, had promoted this. He was a, a, a psychologist um, at Berkeley, I believe, and, um, and wrote this, this piece in the, in the late 60s um, saying that you know, programs like Head Start are unlikely to do much for minority children because this is really genetic, genetic stuff, and 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 we can't do much about about that. And it, it of course uh, caused quite a stir back then. And 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 Tom Tom pushed back at at a lot of Jensen's research, 
with his own his own research. He collected a number of intelligence scores on tests, uh, soldiers in World War One, um, different ethnic groups. Uh, at, at one point, I think he had collected more than seventy thousand intelligence uh, test scores, and he sorted through them, and he and he saw. Uh, these patterns, and um, and and that's why he he took a position that was quite uh, contrary to to Jensen's. Right. L- let me quote you in Maverick. Soul's research wound up unveiling a number of reasons to doubt Jensen's findings. Jensen's findings essentially are that African Americans have are genetically inferior. I mean, it was a racist. It was a straightforward racist finding. Right. That's a fair fair enough statement, isn't that right? Or well. I, I I would I think it's fair to characterize to characterize it. I mean he he, he I think Jensen allowed that um, things could improve over time, but as they were at the, at that time, um, uh, yes, he, he said that that, that genetically uh, blacks were the, the reason the blacks were scoring lower on these tests was genetically based primarily. Yeah. Okay, so I. Uh, to continue to quote you in Maverick, there were white groups in the United States and elsewhere with IQ scores similar to those of blacks. There were black schools with stu- where student IQs exceeded the national average. Black women, it turned out, were significantly overrepresented among people with high IQs. And black orphans raised by white families had an average IQ of 106 when the average score of whites was 100, close quote. So Arthur Jensen, this professional psychologist, puts out a finding Broadly speaking, nobody else in the academic world wanted to touch it. They just wanted to ignore it. Tom says, in effect, no, we can't, we can't have a, can't let something just float out there. Let's find, and then he discovers, actually, no, IQ is malleable. What what I find striking is it was courageous to take it on. Yeah, yeah. And he this wasn't even his field, and he makes he makes significant <laughs> contributions here, right? Well, there are a couple things going on here. The um they not only uh, wanted to reject Jensen. They, what other people wanted to do was simply call Jensen names and yes. look at that. Tom said Jensen is a serious scholar, and he was a serious scholar. And Tom said we should we should uh, take Jensen at his word that he's not producing the scholarship out of bias, but because that is what the data tells him. We should take him at, at his word, and if we think he's wrong. We should find data that shows he's wrong. So that is what Tom was willing to do. And, and you have to contrast that with how others, uh, particularly on the black left at the time, uh, Tom, Tom thinks they were afraid of what they might find if they tried to take on Jensen. And Tom said, I wasn't afraid. He said, frankly, he said, you know, if you want to help black people, if you want to help any group, you have to know where they are to help them move forward. You can't pretend they're not where they are or, or, or just wallow in ignorance over where they are because wherever they want to go, wherever you want them to go, they need to get there from where they are. So we need to know where they are. So, uh, and, and this debate is still going on today with the calls to eliminate SAT uh, tests and so forth. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, it's an assumption that these tests are racist or that the people in favor of these tests are racist. And therefore, if we get rid of the test, we will get rid of the disparities. And no, Tom says, you will not get rid of the disparities by getting rid of the test. You will simply obscure where these kids are and, and that will not help them get ahead. But, but really what, what, what Tom was getting at was a, a, a larger point about 
intellectualism and, and experts and, and, and how things have changed over the generations. And in other words, Jensen uh, was, 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 was coming out of a, 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 a view or a tradition of thinking among intellectuals that dates really to the progressives 100 years ago, who, who saw disparities, um, racial disparities and everything from, from education to income and so forth, and said it must be genetically based. This is where we get the eugenics movement. It's genetics. Racial disparity is caused by genetic differences. Now, here we are 100 years later, and the, and the, and the uh, intellectuals, uh, the progressives, are telling us, no, it's not genetics. It's discrimination. The racial disparities are, are, the source of them is discrimination, racism, bias, prejudice, full stop. We cannot talk about anything else. And, and Tom says, the problem with both of these approaches is that it's, it's, it's taking a factor and making it the factor without having the evidence to do so. And that was ultimately his critique of Jensen, just as it is his critique of the progressives today. Got it. Got it. So what's happening now? He's, he's writing these books, of course, and doing this work, but he's also teaching. After his, he gets his doctorate from Chicago, he teaches at a number of institutions, I guess most notably Cornell and UCLA. And then in 1980, he says, no, I'm done teaching. And he comes to the Hoover Institution where he remains to this day. Tell just what's going on there. He wanted to be a teacher. He did. He quote letters from him to his friends saying how much he wants to be a teacher, how much he aspires to this kind of life. He's, he even, there's a letter, as I recall, you'll correct me if I get this wrong, but there's a, a, one letter you quote in which he, 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 he so loves teaching that he he praises it over research, really. He, oh, he'd yeah. Rather be, oh, yeah. He'd rather be in a classroom with kids than off in the library doing his own research, which was so striking to me because you very seldom hear that from professional academics. Yeah, he, he did. His first, his first love was teaching. And not only that, he, he wanted to teach at a black college. He was very interested in teaching at a black college. Even when he was um, uh, in, in, uh, uh, in graduate school at Columbia, uh, he and a, and a black friend talked about uh, when they get out of school, how they're going to go to black school and then help these schools out. I mean, he, he thought that is where the need was. For, at the time, particularly in the South, um, more, most blacks who went to college went to all black colleges. And, and so he wanted to go where, where, where the kids are, where the black kids that he wanted to educate were. And, um, and there's a, 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 an incident where, uh, you know, he gets uh, he goes to Howard University and does wind up, wind up teaching there. And um, he he's becomes very dispirited with the atmosphere at the school. There's rampant cheating going on. The, the, the administrators are doing a poor job. He doesn't like the way the, the place is run. Uh, there's a lot of interference in his teaching. They think he's being too hard on the kids. He thinks they're being, they're, 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 they're being too easy on the kids and so forth. So just run in after run in. And he, he doesn't even want to complete the semester. And he calls uh, Milton Friedman, his, his mentor at Chicago, and, uh, and, 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 and says, you know, uh, would, would it be unprofessional for me to leave before the semester is over? <laughs> and uh, and they, they convince him that he should stick it out for the semester. But he, but he eventually leaves. Um, and then he goes on to these, to these other schools. And, and while the problems are somewhat different at different schools, um, 
he does have a lot of run-ins with administrators and, and, and facu- other faculty there where they want to interfere with him with a style of teacher or teaching or they feel he's, he's um, grading too hard or, or, or so forth. But what's really going on here is, the, is this is the 60s and, and, and academia is really changing. You know, the civil rights movement is going on, the women's rights movement, the gay rights movement, the anti-war movement is going on. College, higher education is, is changing very quickly. A lot of these movements have huge platforms in the academy now. And, and Tom was, was of a different era. He was trying to teach the way he had been taught. And, and that, was, that was coming into conflict with the direction that academia was heading. And so I, I think ultimately uh, th- this comes to a head at Cornell in the late 60s when he's there for, um, for the big student riots that were there on campus and, uh, and the takeover of school buildings by armed students. And I, I think by, by, by the time he was done at Cornell uh, in the late 60s, he was, he was really had one foot out the door of teaching. I think he said, this is not uh, for me. He, he, he carried on for another decade at various institutions, but he did step up during the 70s, his, um, his, his public intellectualism. He, he started um, uh, doing more public speaking. Uh, he, he started writing more. Um, and for more general audiences as well, uh, newspapers and magazines and, and places like that. Uh, and so I think throughout the 70s, he was gradually moving, moving out of teaching. He eventually gets um, his, his um, tenure at, at UCLA uh, and, and, and is on there for a while. And then he leaves in 1980 and goes to Hoover. To come to the Hoover Institution. And you say that for the Hoover Institution, where there's no teaching, Right. Some people at the Hoover Institution get joint appointments with Stanford and teach in various departments at Stanford. Tom did not. Yeah. He devoted himself to writing books. Right. And you describe the Hoover Institution, the word you use is that for him it was heaven. Oh, yeah. And, no and office you hours. Just, you, you, okay. just told, you just described the story. He had tenure at UCLA. In a typical academic career, tenure at a major institution such as UCLA that's heaven. So, <laughs> so what's going on here, Jason? Why is it that being just left alone at the Hoover Institution is heaven for him from the time he's what he's in his he's in his fifth. Uh, he's close to 50, I guess, at this stage. In, in 1980, when he joined Hoover, he was 50. Yeah. 50, um, okay. uh, Tom didn't want to deal with the campus politics. And I don't just mean that in terms just of various movements, just the faculty lounge politics. Um, uh, that isn't what he wanted to do. He wanted to teach. Uh, and he really, he had preferred to teach at a small university. But, but Tom, you know, through, through, the, through the 60s and 70s, Tom had established himself as, as, a, as really a first-rate scholar. Um, he could have had tenure anywhere. He could yes. have had tenure at Cornell. He turned down Ivy League posts. Uh, that that wasn't the issue. That that wasn't the goal for him. Tom wanted to to reach students, and and education had been such a path for him uh, to, to 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 get where he had gone in life. Uh, he he just really wanted to share uh, what he had learned with others in the classroom in that setting. He wanted to do it more than he wanted to do research and all the rest. But he was not willing uh, to 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 compromise his principles uh, to do that when it came to things like grading or interference from administrators and his teaching style. And so, you know, if, 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 if you, you don't play nice with others in that sort of way, uh, it's hard to make it 
um, in the in the academy. And and what 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 Hoover offered Tom was uh, the, the the ability to write and to research and um, and and no 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 teaching duties, no classroom hours, and so forth. And and so you know, I think he's been he's been quite happy there. You know, I I, I do think Peter, I'll say this, and I get into it a little bit in the, in the book. There's a trade off here, as with everything, uh, as as, as as Tom would tell you himself, you know, there, there are academics out there, your, your Milton Friedman's or your Richard Epstein's come to mind, who stuck it out in teaching. Yes. And as a result, they've had thousands of graduate students that have studied under them and gone out there and, 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 and said similar things and done similar things with their lives. Uh, had Tom stuck it out in teaching? Maybe we'd have, uh, you know, a small army of Tom Souls out there in the world today, and that would be a good thing. So there are there are trade-offs, and there are some people who think they wish he had stuck it out in, in, in academia. But if he sticks it out in academia, I think he becomes probably a lot less productive in terms of the books that he's written and the columns that he's written that are yes. for so many people. I remember doing an interview with Tom. I think he was 87 years old, 86 or 87. And I read to him a list of a dozen titles, a dozen. And I said, Tom, do you know what, what these have in common? And he said, well, they're books by me, but no, what do they have in common? And I said, those are all books you've published since turning 80. Yeah. The productivity is staggering. All right, we, we don't have time to go through all the books, but you spend a lot of time on, on the trilogy of books that he wrote on culture. Let's, let's discuss this. This is in some ways his major achievement during the Hoover Institution years. He publishes these three books during the 90s. Race and Culture is 1994, Migrations and Culture is 97, and Conquests and Culture is 99. Maverick, I'm quoting your book, Jason. Most analyses of social and economic intergroup differences focus on the immediate surroundings in which people live. Sowell concluded that it isn't the immediate environment per se, but cultural values and human capital, skills, work habits, saving propensities, attitudes toward education and entrepreneurship develop sometimes over long periods of time that are the more dominant factors in explaining disparities, close quote. All right, explain that. Immediate surrounding, the immediate environment versus the larger questions of time and culture, culture that is to say has built up over time. What, help, help expand on that if you would. Well. One of the ways Tom has, has, has talked about this is um, uh, the sort of Petri dish you had on the Lower East Side of Manhattan um, uh, in, the, in the first half of the 20th century, where you had immigrants coming from uh, everywhere from Russia, uh, Jewish students, um, you had uh, Italians and Irish, and you put all these kids in the same class in front of the same teacher, and you were getting wildly different outcomes. And people were saying, you know, Shouldn't they? Shouldn't we have equal outcomes if you know all these kids are sitting in the same class? They're the same age. Uh, they're sitting in front of the same teacher for the same hours every day. And Tom said, "Well, uh, they're in the same environment. If the environment you're talking about is their immediate surroundings," he says. But when uh, the, the in, in Italy, where the where those uh, children of Italian immigrants came, he says, when they put in compulsory school laws in Italy, schoolhouses burned because the parents did not want their kids in school. They wanted them to start working as soon as possible. That was more important to them. And then he says, but if you look at Tsarist Russia, uh, where most of the greater population was illiterate, 
even there, most Jews had books in their homes, which gives you a, a sense of their value of education. So you take that Jewish kid from that tradition and that culture, and you take that Italian kid from this other tradition and culture, and you put them in the same classroom, no, you should not expect the same outcomes uh, or, or that they're, they're going to be uh, 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 getting the same results uh, as, a result, uh, as, as a result of being in, in, in proximity to one another. And so what, what Tom is talking about is, 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 again, the primacy of culture and human capital. And he takes it further. Um, Tom, Tom says that and, and he's documented this uh, in cases not only here within the United States, but, but globally, as he so often does with his international comparisons. He said, he's, he's talked about how, how those groups, those minority racial and ethnic groups who do have that human capital um, can withstand all kinds of bad treatment from the surrounding majority population. That that human capital is far more important to them than having people who look like them in political office with political power. It's, 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 it's more important than any special program you can set up for these people, government program that you can set up for these people. If you have this human capital, uh, uh, it, 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 it can overcome all kinds of adversity that a group may face. And, and that is why uh, he, put, he places so much uh, uh, emphasis on it, um, and it's of a piece with his, his, you know, his wanting to be an educator. And again, the value of of, of an education and, and a group rising from poverty to prosperity. And so, for 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 example, he, he would you 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 look at a group like um, uh, the Japanese Americans who who came here and, and out in California where where you are, they couldn't own land for a period of time when 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 they first arrived. They were interned. Uh, during World War II unjustly. Uh, yet uh, Japanese Americans uh, outperform white Americans academically and economically and have for decades, uh, despite the fact that they have been treated this way. Uh, and, and then there, the, the, you know, you, you have groups like, uh, you know, black Americans outperforming uh, Mexican Americans or Puerto Rican Americans uh, even though no one would argue that Mexicans or Puerto Ricans have faced more discrimination uh, than Black people have in America. Mm -hmm. So again, Sol says that that uh, this this whole idea that you can you, you, you can point to uh, discrimination as the reason we have inequality is undermined by the case of groups that have cultural capital, human capital, being discriminated against and rising notwithstanding that discrimination. So this leads into the first problem in the trilogy is understanding these intergroup differences and recognizing the importance of the wider culture. Again, I'm quoting you in Maverick, the second order problem that the trilogy addresses, the second order problem was the attempt by public policymakers to help lagging groups. Another brief clip, if you would, Jason. These are people who are so low, they don't even count in the caste system. They're, no, that's right. right. That's right. Uh, treated, treated abominably. Uh, and so it's understandable people would want to do something to make things better for them. Uh, what actually happened, however, is that extremely few untouchables actually are able to make use of any of these uh, uh, preferences and quotas. The preferences and quotas are for hiring or education or what form Both, do they take? They're, they're, they're actually for, the, for hiring, for education, uh, for seats in parliament. 
Uh, but of course, for all those things, you have to have various complementary resources. So it doesn't do you any good if you're somebody out in a little village where you're struggling to make ends meet, that there's a place reserved for you in the medical school. Uh, you know, and you'll be lucky if you can make it to high school. Mm. He was talking there about India and affirmative action programs for the untouchable caste and how they just didn't work. But I have questions about that. But here's the first question. Talk for a moment about the scholarship, the sheer erudition that that implies, that he studied, he studied affirmative action in India, for goodness sake. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he wrote a book, Affirmative Action uh, Around the World, uh, it's an, and it's an empirical study of this. And, and uh, uh, the same with, you know, welfare programs. He studied them here in America. He studied, uh, he studied them in, in Britain. He studied them and. and, and, and and, and that's why he has become so convinced that uh, what hasn't worked here uh, hasn't worked anywhere. <laughs> you know, so so it's a, I'm not shocked that we spent trillions of dollars on redistribution policies in the U.S. since the 1960s. And yet we still have these gaps because that's been tried in other places at other times, and it hasn't worked in those other places and those other times as well. So he, he is brilliant at, at, at thinking outside of America when it comes to addressing these problems. And I think too many others don't do that. They don't bring that sort of uh, international uh, perspective to these to these uh, to their work that, that that Tom does, and it's one of the things, one of the ways I think he's he's really uh, distinguished himself. You, you know, you, you mentioned India, but you he studied uh, affirmative action programs throughout Southeast Asia, and for instance, uh, you know how the ethnic Chinese have been discriminated against, and yet have, have risen in nation after nation, Singapore and so forth, Malaysia above uh, uh, the, the the native population, uh, despite the fact that they've been locked out of certain industries locked out of certain types of schooling and so forth. It hasn't, it hasn't mattered. Right. Um, Tom's latest book, Charter Schools and Their Enemies, which he published as he turned 90 years old. The book is a study of what does work, which of course is education. And in particular, he studies charter schools in New York City in Harlem, where he himself grew up. And um, the good results that these schools are producing, not just good, in some ways, astonishing results where the, the kids are largely black and Hispanic and their scores compare favorably with those of white kids out in the fancy suburbs. Okay. And then you get teachers unions and Mayor de Blasio attempting to thwart these schools. Here's another clip, Jason. And by the way, we, we recorded this interview with Tom on his 90th birthday. Tom, would you, would you read the closing passage from Charter Schools and Their Enemies? This is especially important when considering children from a cultural background, lacking the advantages that are common among children born into more fortunate circumstances. Children who have not received at home the educational, behavioral, and other foundations for making the most of their natural ability must get those things in school. These are the plain and harsh realities of circumstances. The stakes are huge, not only for children whose education can be their one clear ticket for a better, better life, 
but also for a whole society that needs more productive members fulfilling themselves while contributing their talents to the progress of the community at large. Children who emerge from their education with a mastery of mathematics, the English language, and other fun fundamentals are ready to be those kinds of people, regardless of what color or class they come from. No narrow vested interests of adults, whether financial, political, or ideological, should be allowed to block that. Is that what his work comes down to? Uh, education. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really think it, it, it does. I, I, I've said if that, I hope he writes another book, uh, Peter, but if that does happen to be his swan song, I think it'll be very, a very fitting one. He, he's written extensively uh, about education, particularly about black education, uh, uh, over, over, over pioneering work that he did about uh, black high schools, uh, black grade schools, uh, the work that he started writing about back in the, in the 70s. And this would that's this book is, is, is it would be quite quite a, a swan song. And I, I put it in the context though, Peter, of, of, of what the the left has is doing to these poor communities. You think about it. Um, th they want to defund the policing of these communities. They want to take away the highest performing schools in these communities, these charter schools. Their policies, their, their welfare state policies have already destroyed the black family. If you take away safe neighborhoods, good schools, and intact families, what do these people have left here? And this is system, systematically what is happening. And I think Tom is absolutely right. You, if these kids don't have a decent education, what hope do they have? Um, and, and, and he, he gets that. He's gotten that for a long, long time. And he spent a lifetime, a professional lifetime, trying to explain it to others. And one of the things I've always been fascinated with is how late a start he got and how productive he's been. As you mentioned, he didn't graduate from Harvard, get his undergraduate, undergraduate degree until he was 28 years old. He didn't publish his first book until he was 40. Think about that. <laughs> By the way, I, Tom once said, to, I can't remember whether we captured this on camera or whether it was a quip off camera, but I, we were talking about his education at Harvard. And he said, well, the principal benefit of a Harvard degree is that you never again in all your life have to be intimidated by anybody who has a Harvard degree. <laughs> Jason, I'm going to quote you again in Maverick. His books on racial issues, we haven't talked about these. And honestly, in a certain sense, I'm leery about talking about them because one of the things you do in your book is situate him as this magnificent, capacious mind who ranges across economics and history and culture and even gets into disputes on genetics. And you refuse to permit him to be viewed as a black conservative. You, you refuse to permit this remarkable mind and this huge body of work to be reduced to just that. On the other hand, there is that in the work. So to discuss it, at least civil rights rhetoric or reality, black rednecks and white liberals, discrimination and disparities, there are a number of books, important books on race in America. Maverick, quote, your book. 
Soul's books on racial issues were written out of a personal sense of duty. And here you quote Tom himself, because there were things I thought needed saying, and I knew that other people were reluctant to say them, close quote. And what were the things that needed saying? Education? Go- what, what needed saying, I think, uh, was that the, the, the civil rights leadership, as Tom would put it, was barking up the wrong tree. That their, their pivot away from equal opportunity toward equal results was uh, the wrong way to go. And, 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 and the opportunity cost involved here, Tom would say, have been tragic. Um, A, because equal results are part of that utopian vision of the world that are simply, right. simply unrealistic. The, 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 the left has this view as if the natural state of things are equal outcomes uh, or proportionate outcomes or something approaching proportionate outcomes in, in income or, or, or representation in certain professions or, 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 or employment and so forth. Whereas people who have actually studied societies around the world have, can, can find no evidence that this is the natural state of things. And, and, and yet you have this whole civil rights vision um, premised on, 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 on the notion that where we don't see proportionate outcomes, something is wrong, something is amiss, and it is discrimination. Uh, and that will be our focus. And Tom says that that was just the wrong, the wrong focus. And so, you know, you know since the 1960s, the left has spent a lot of time um, trying to elect black uh, officials, put blacks into office, thinking if we have the political power, all the rest will take care of itself. And, 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 and Tom has says no, that that is something, um, again, his international perspectives, that has generally not worked for other groups. And the ones who have tried it have risen to prosperity the slowest. So it can work, but it's a very inefficient way to go. And it's not the way uh, the Black leadership should be going. So it's those types of things. that What also needed to be said to Tom is that is, is how harmful many of these policies aim to help blacks have been. Policies like affirmative action, and you, you have the situation in, in California with admissions into, into the university system. So uh, you know this history, but back in 1996, University of California uh, uh, race-based admissions were banned. Right. And after that ban went into place, black graduation rates actually went up and not by a little bit. Hispanic graduation rates actually went up. So a policy that had been put in place to help grow to swell the ranks of the black middle class had in practice resulted in fewer black doctors and lawyers and engineers and so forth than we would have had in the absence of the policy. So, so, so Sol's point is that these policies have not just been wrong, they've in some cases been detrimental right. to uh, the interest of, of blacks. And that is what needed to be said. And that is what too few others were, were willing to say out loud. Jason, Tom writes Tom writes a lot about this, and you do too. And it is what, I don't know if there's a term for it, but it's, to me, it's like a lost century of American history where from the end of the Civil War, from the end of slavery to a century later, that is to say right up until the moment the civil rights legislation goes through, 
African-Americans make progress of all kinds. Now, of course, they're starting at a very low disadvantaged rate, but families remain cohesive and intact. The black education, uh, the huge attainments in education, large attainments in income, and then the civil rights legislation is enacted. And here, you quote, actually, this is, let me quote you. This is not quoting Tom. This is your characterization of an argument. Maverick, even as Blacks were increasing their political clout in the 70s and 1980s, this is as a result of, or at least subsequent to, the civil rights legislation of the mid-60s. Even as Blacks were increasing their political clout, Black welfare dependency was rising, as was Black crime, Black teen unemployment, and births to, to Black women. None of this surprised Seoul, right. close right. quote. Yeah. And well, that is because he knew the history. Right, right. He knew the history. So, so, so much, as, as he said, so much of, of what is described uh, uh, by the left today as a legacy of slavery or a legacy of Jim Crow is in reality a legacy of the great society. If you look at the trend lines, that's that's so obvious. And whether you're looking at income trend lines, uh, 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 you know, uh, single parenting, crime, uh, educational attainment, you saw uh, accelerated. You, you, you saw growth in and movement, I should say, in the right direction at a much much faster pace in the first half of the 20th century than you did. Uh, beginning after the the Great Society programs of the 1960s were enacted, mm-hmm. um, and 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 you mentioned the political clout that that blacks were gaining in starting in the 1970s and so forth. Tom's point is that that political clout didn't couldn't couldn't help us return to those trends that we saw in the first half of the 20th century, and that's the point. It's not it's not to say that blacks shouldn't engage politically or that, that, that we didn't need to pass a Voting Rights Act or a Civil Rights Act. Tom supported all that. His, his claim was that this isn't going to do it. This isn't, this isn't going to be the silver, the silver bullet. This is not going to be the key to Black advancement. It, it's, it, it's not going to do what proponents think it's going to do. Uh, right, you, right. And, and, and that has been uh, uh, Tom's point, and, 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 and tragically has been proven right about, about all of this. And he was saying it. Uh, back at the time, back at in, in the 1960s, when these when these when this legislation was first being considered, Tom Tom on the present moment reparations. Here again, one last time. Let's look at a brief clip. Longish quotation, but it's it sets something up. But from Ta Nahisi Coates in an article in the Atlantic entitled "The Case for Reparations." White supremacy is not merely the work work of hot headed demagogues, but a force so fundamental to America that it is difficult to imagine the country without it. And so we must imagine a new country. Reparations is the price we must pay to see ourselves squarely. The wealth gap merely puts a number on something we feel but cannot say, that American prosperity was ill-gotten and selective in its distribution. What I'm talking about is more than recompense for past injustices. What I'm talking about is a national reckoning that would lead to spiritual renewal, close quote. And Tom Sowell makes what of that? (laughs) 
I, I well, it explain. It, it, it tells me that I mean, I've made the right decision not to read the Atlantic for a, for decades. Uh, slavery is a very big subject. I, I have in my home an entire bookcase of nothing things books about slavery in various parts of the world, various times of history, and the sad fact is that slavery has been a universal institution for thousands of years, as far back as you can trace human history. And what we're looking at is if slavery is something that happened to one race of people in one country, when in fact the, the, the spread of it was around the world. In, in 1776, which is when Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nation, as mm -hmm. well as when the United States got started, he said that Western Europe is the only place in the world where there is no slavery. Uh, and even in the Western, even the Western Europeans had vast numbers of slaves in the Western in, Hemisphere, yes. but not in Western Europe itself. And so, if you're going to have reparations for slavery, it's going to be the greatest transfer of wealth back and forth, uh, and between and and and, and cross hauling, as they say in, in the railroads, because the, the number of, of whites, for example, who were enslaved in uh, North Africa by the Barbary pirates, exceeded the number of Africans enslaved in the United States and in the American colonies before that, put together. I know, but nobody is going to North Africa to ask for reparations because nobody is going to be fool enough to give it to them. Uh, here we have, we have intellectuals who can, who can imagine a different history from the rest of the world, even though it's so similar to the rest of the world. Maverick, your book, Thomas Sowell has not gained iconic status by going against the grain of most blacks. He's done so by taking on the thinking of most black intellectuals. Explain that, Jason. Tom is um, often asked in interviews um, what it feels like to go against the grain of other blacks in his thinking about things. And he always stops and corrects the interviewer and says, uh, I'm not going against the grain of other blacks. I'm going against the grain of other black intellectuals. And there's a difference. He says these black intellectuals don't represent uh, black people any more than white intellectuals represent white people. You know, these intellectuals are acting in their own, their own self-interest and you shouldn't conflate the two. And, you know, I guess in today's parlance, it would, we would say that soul soul has been canceled. And, and this is something that uh, the left, the black left in particular, uh, uh, did to him a long, a long time ago. Uh, they wanted to make him um, someone you do not take seriously, um, someone whose opinion does not matter. And, and because the left uh, controls largely uh, the intellectual circles, uh, be it in academia, uh, be it in, in, in the foundation world, be it in in the committees that give out awards and prizes to, to scholars, um, they have effectively canceled Thomas Sowell. And I don't think he's deserved uh, his due uh, for his scholarship. Um, uh, and it's why we uh, more people know who Ta-Nehisi Coates is or Ibram Kendi is or Henry Louis Gates or Cornell West than know who Thomas Sowell is, even though Tom's scholarship is not only far broader but far deeper and, and more rigorous uh, in, in its analysis and its methodology than those guys. He's written circles around them. And, uh, and, and the reason I think is that um, 
the left has effectively effectively canceled canceled Tom, and it's um it's too bad. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm uh, it's one of the reasons I wanted to to both write the book and and uh, uh, narrate the documentary. I think uh, more people should know about Tom uh, and his work. Jason, two two final questions here. Here's the first. You quote a letter that Tom wrote to his best friend, Walter Williams, whom we lost just last year. And Tom says that, as you note elsewhere in Maverick, there was a time when they decided that they'd never travel on the same airplane because if the plane went down, the black conservative movement would be wiped out. So Tom writes this. Today, we know that there are lots of other blacks writing, and many of them are sufficiently younger that we know there will be good people carrying on the fight after we are gone, close quote. All right, this brings me to you. It's impossible not to think. It's impossible not to think when you start asking about legacy, you think, Jason, how does this, how does this, seriously, because he means so much to you, you agree with him, on the fundamentals, there's so many ways in which when you write a column in the Wall Street Journal, I feel this, at least when I'm reading it, correct me if I'm mischaracterizing it, but you're carrying on, of course, you, your work is always original and, and, and fresh to you, but you're, car- you're working in a tradition and Tom, is, Tom stands oh, in that cool. tradition. All right. On the other hand, he's canceled. We have the Black Lives Matters movement and riots and a kind of woke revolution that's taken place in the last year. How do you feel? Are you trying to engage in a dignified defense of a lost cause? Or do you see an opening here for progress in, in your generation? I'm, 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 I'm a little pessimistic, Peter, to, to be honest. I mean, it, it, it may be, uh, uh, I didn't know if it would, if it's actually possible, but I might be more pessimistic than Tom Sowell about something. That's <laughs> um, not I, easy I, I'm to not do. Sure I share, I'm, I'm not sure, sure that I share the optimism uh, he expressed in that letter, though that letter comes from the early 2000s. So it, it predates a, a little bit of what we've, we've been what seeing. What we've just been through. Mo- mo- most recently with the rise of Black Lives Matter and, and so forth. Um, uh, I, I if we could use a sports analogy, uh, I, I don't. I don't know that that black conservatism has the farm team that the other side has. The, the, it seems to me that when your Cornell Wests are gone, um, there's going to be a whole army of Ta-Nehisi Coates's and Ibram X Kendi's coming along behind them. I don't see a whole army of Tom Souls out there. Um, uh, I see more than I used to. Um, uh, but I, I'm, 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 I think right now the progressive left, including the black progressive left, is ascendant. Uh, you see it in critical race theory, dominating conversations outside of academia, getting into our workplace diversity training and, and now into our elementary schools. This, this, this horrifies me. It really, it really does. Um, I, I, I'm going to continue doing what I do as a journalist. And, and if you read uh, uh, Thomas Sowell's, uh, uh, inklings of Thomas Sowell in my writing, that is definitely by design. That is, that is absolutely the case. 
He has been a huge, a huge influence on my thinking. And, and I have consciously tried to, to carry on in, in that tradition. And, and, and so, um, um, uh, you know, like I said, I, I, I see more than I used to in terms of, 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 of the type of, of, of scholarship that Tom pioneered. Uh, but but I wish I wish I, I saw more. All right. Last question. The playwright Claire Booth Luce used to say, it doesn't matter how significant a figure is, history will give him one sentence. Churchill defeated Hitler. Lincoln saved the Union. What what one sentence should history give to Tom Sowell? Um, maverick intellectual. Very nice. Jason Riley, the author of Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Peter. Enjoy and it. now go, go take care. I see that that little yellow hand has been over your shoulder. There's a there's a child in your family <laughs> who, who may be wondering where daddy is right about now. Okay. But thanks, Jason. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.